Revelation chapter 3, very end of the chapter, last church, the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, and verse 14. And to the, church, or to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, spew you, vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, if you left Philadelphia and went, continued on going southeast out of, out of the city, the last city that we were at in Philadelphia, if you left and went continued southeast and traveled for some time, and uh, you, you kind of realized what you're doing as you started this, this, this little trek of visiting these seven places where these churches were. You would realize that as you come into the Lycus Valley and you're headed to Laodicea, you're just about due east from Ephesus where you started. And so what you would realize is you've kind of made this little circle on your little trek on the western coast of modern day Turkey. And so as you continued on southeast, you enter into this valley. It was called the Lycus Valley. On the lower end of the valley was this city, this little city called Laodicea. On the upper end of the valley was another city. It's a city, these, there were actually three cities that were very famous. Laodicea on the lower end. On the upper end of the valley was a city, Colossae. And we know about Colossae because Paul wrote a letter to this church that was in Colossae. It's the book of Colossians. In fact, in the book of Colossians, he references the Laodiceans. So on the lower end of the valley is Laodicea. On the upper end of the valley is Colossae. There's a third city that's in this valley that, that was very important in the day. And it's the city of Hierapolis. So, if you enter into the Lycus Valley, and you stop at Colossae in the upper end, 
and you're tired and thirsty, you would find in Colossae, man, there was cool, cold, refreshing, fresh water. And you would get you a drink. And then you would say, well, let's continue on to Laodicea. And then as you're going to Laodicea, you would say, hey, before we go to Laodicea, let's go just north of Laodicea and let's go to the hot springs. Let's go into the hot springs. I've heard they're wonderful. And let's go to the hot springs and get a mud bath. And, you know, we've had some cool, refreshing water. Now let's go to these hot springs and, you know, kind of tired and achy and so forth. I don't know if you've ever been to hot springs. When we lived in Wyoming, there was a place outside of where we lived called Thermopolis. And then you would go, and it's a beautiful drive, and you go through this canyon, and you get to Thermopolis, and it was known for its hot springs. And they had these beautiful hot springs, and you could go, and there was a place you could go, and it could be, you know, 20 below zero, and you go inside, and you get in these hot springs. It's just great. It's like a big old swimming pool, and it's warm, and people would come there from all over the world, literally, soaking those hot springs for, you know, healing this, arthritis and this or that. But there's one thing about it. When you got close to that, it smelled terrible. I don't know if you've ever been to hot springs like that. And you got in that water, man, it felt good. But it was just this sort of this smell that just lingered everywhere. And you'd get out of those hot springs, you'd want to go shower, and that smell would just kind of stay with you. So you leave Hierapolis, you go to Laodicea, and, and you see Laodicea, and man, it's a stunning place. Immediately you see it and you go, man, this is a wealthy place. Man, they got a lot of money. This city is certainly self-sufficient. They don't need anything. It looks like they have it made here. But you would notice this sort of this stench. You're like, I wonder what that smell is. And then as you got there and stayed there a while, you realized the smell was the water. It was the water. As you messed around in Laodicea, you would see black sheep. They would have this pretty glossy wool. You would notice this garment industry that had built up in Laodicea, and it was, a, it, was, it was a famous garment, and they would make out of this glossy black wool. Now, the thing about it, it was not flashy. It's not something, you know, that you would wear to, you know, highfalutin parties. It wasn't high fashion stuff. This was just kind of dirty, gritty, down to durable, hard, I mean, it was stuff that would last forever, and it was good quality, and it was a great business, and they were making money like crazy off this stuff, and so you would see this, you would see this great industry there. They also, you would also notice that there was a great medical facility there. They were known for one aspect of medicine. The one aspect of medicine they were known for is this eye Some called it an ointment, some called it a salve. It was more like it was in this peel form and they would crush it, make this paste, and they would put it on their eyes and it would relieve all sorts of eye problems. And it was world famous. People would get this stuff from all over. So you would notice that. It was this great, great business that was flourishing. The other thing that you'd become aware of is you're in Laodicea is that you're right there on the eastern border and you're... Your plans are to go further east, so you're about to get out of this area. And one of the things, if you've traveled out of the country, one of the things you need to do is exchange money, right? So if you're going somewhere and you've got American money, American currency, and you're going someplace and 
You need to exchange your money, and there were places to do that. In Laodicea, there was this great banking system that was there. And man, it was wealthy. It was a wealthy banking system. And so people would come, because Laodicea was on a major road that led out of this part of the empire to the east, and one writer described it as sort of a knot of roads. There was just a bunch of stuff that kind of came together at Laodicea, but there was a main road, and they traded on that road, and all sorts of things, traveling back and forth. You remember Philadelphia, gateway city to the east? Well, in this, this banking business had built up, and Laodicea was wealthy. It was a wealthy city. It was a self-sufficient city. In fact, they would brag about how they didn't need Roman money. They took care of their own deals. It was also a city because this whole Lycus Valley area was prone to earthquakes. Remember Philadelphia, destroyed by an earthquake. And so you have Laodicea here in, in 60 AD that was, that was destroyed by an earthquake. Now, you know, anytime we've just had flooding, right? And so whenever there's an area that has some type of natural disaster, we always hear that the federal government has stepped in and, and it's been declared a federal disaster area, right? Hurricanes, tornadoes, and so forth. The Romans had the same sort of system. So if there was a great earthquake, the Roman government would step in and help rebuild and so forth and not Laodicea. Laodicea has this devastating earthquake and they fire off a letter to Rome and say, we don't need your help. We got all the money in the world. We'll take care of it on our own. And so they did. They rebuilt, and what one thing they would do is you were walking around in Laodicea, you would see these plaques, and it would say something like, building destroyed by earthquake, but rebuilt by banker so-and-so. Or you'd go over here, and there'd be a, you know, a place in it, building destroyed by earthquake, but rebuilt by you know, doctor so-and-so in the, in, 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 you know, some eye doctor. They were just self-sufficient. They were cocky. And one of the things about this city is that in order to maintain that kind of prosperity, they became known. Some of the writers described the city this way. Some of them described the, the people in the city as pliable. They would bend and shake whichever way they needed to go. Because they were going to maintain their prosperity. Some described the city as being a city of compromise. It was a compromising city. Again, they're just going to maintain their, prop, their prosperity, do whatever. They would tolerate whatever they needed to tolerate in order to maintain their prosperity. As long as they had their stuff. It, you know, it's like one writer said it was a city that was just sort of there in a lot of ways. Hard to really put your hand on any defining characteristic of the city or the people. Because they could be one thing, another, another, another. But one thing they were going to hang on to, they were going to hang on to their prosperity. And they were going to make sure that they didn't need anything. They were going to make sure that they were a self-sufficient city. The city was founded by Antiochus II in the 3rd century B.C., and it was, because of its location, it was founded sort of as a fortress. And uh, it was, again, it was on a leading road that went to the east. It's wealthy again, 
Three things that stood out about this and where the city kind of made its wealth was the garment industry with the sheep, the eye medicine, and that great medical school and this eye medicine that they have, but also the banking. The banking. Man, you looked at Laodicea and you went, wow, they got it. They got it. They don't need anything. Man, if this is a place where, you know, I'd want to hang out and try to start a business or do it, this place would be... This place would be kind of it. They're self-sufficient, prosperous, and they're going to hang on to it. They're going to hang on to it no matter what they have to do, no matter what they have to accommodate, no matter what they have to compromise, no matter what they have to tolerate. At the end of the day, we will maintain our prosperity. That's the city. And you know what? Sitting in the city is a church doing the same thing. Claiming to be self-sufficient. Holding on to its at least outward prosperity. Tolerating whatever it needed to tolerate. Accommodating whatever it needed to accommodate. Compromising where it needed to compromise. Being pliable. Being bending and moving and sticking their finger in the wind and seeing what the majority of the people want today. Oh, they want this kind of music? Hey, let's go with it. Oh, they want this kind of preaching? Oh, hey, let's go with it. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is we better maintain our outward prosperity. And we better keep our buildings and our budgets and keep the things going and keep the things rolling. And we'll bend and mold into whatever we need to to do it. Sound familiar? Well, here's this church. It's right there. Jesus says nothing good about this church. Nothing good about this church. Just like with Ephesus, the first church. It's prosperous, at least outwardly. It's doing whatever it needs to do to maintain its prosperity. And and, in a sense, it's it's this. And this is what Jesus is going to say to this church. You're useless. You're good for nothing. Can you imagine being told that? Can you imagine Jesus coming to a church and saying, guys, listen up. You're useless. And you're good for nothing. Well, he does to the Laodiceans. But there's hope. There's always hope with him. So this is a critical, this is a critical situation with the church at Laodicea. Prosperity can lead to blindness. Prosperity can blind you to the true spiritual condition, to the true nature. And doing that, you begin, you forget the source of all of what is really makes us prosper and all of our prosperity, the source of all this. We forget. We even start to redefine what being prosper means, uh, prosperity means. We start to define prosperity in material things. Whereas God never defines prosperity that way. In fact, God never calls us to be prosperous. He calls us to be faithful. Now that would be a shock to a lot of 
modern churches today. To say something like that, you might be branded a heretic. To say something like that, they might say, get behind thee, Satan. But it's the reality. And we see it in this letter. This prosperity that leads to this blindness of true condition, forgetting the source of what our prosperity is, not depending on God, thinking we're self-sufficient. All of this stuff. It can happen to us personally. It can happen to us as a church. We begin to compromise. We begin to tolerate. We become pliable. We do whatever we can just to maintain this, what we've defined now as prosperity. It's a critical condition. This church is in trouble. It's critical. And it needs an intervention. And what does Jesus do? He steps in and he intervenes. And he offers hope here. But in this intervention, three areas he deals with. The first one that he deals with is you need to understand your true spiritual condition here. You need to understand your true spiritual condition. And in seeing that, you need to realize what your true need really is here. Okay, You need to understand what your true need is. But then there's this beautiful promise of fellowship. There's this beautiful offer that he gives to this church as he offers this fellowship. So in these three areas, Jesus intervenes in a great way. And he's intervening. Listen, when you intervene in something, it's critical, right? I mean, this is a critical situation. This church is in major, major trouble. But if you looked at it from the outside, you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see it. Because if we define prosperity, and if we're not careful, we begin to confuse true spiritual prosperity... Now let me be careful here. We begin to confuse true spiritual prosperity and faithfulness with the prosperity of the American dream. And when we confuse the two, we're in critical condition. We're in critical condition. Well, what does he say? What's the first thing that he says? Well, he identifies the true condition of this church. Verse 14, he says unto the angel of the church in the Laodicea, write. It's an imperative again. Write. Write these words. And here's what he says. Here's, here's who's saying this. Same pattern that we see with the churches as he starts. Write to the angel the words of the amen. Again, an article here. The amen. The amen. The true one. And then he says, the faithful and true witness. This is not something false here. This is not some false vision. This is not some false demonic thing here. This is Christ. The amen, the true one, the faithful and true witness. And then here's a further identification that's given the beginning of God's creation. Now, if you read that in English, you may think, well, wait a minute. Hang on a second. I thought Jesus was eternal. Yeah, he is. This is not saying that he's the beginning of God's creation in the sense that he's the first thing created. That's the Arian heresy. That's the error of the Jehovah Witness today. That's the way they view Christ. He is the first thing God created. It's an old heresy. It's not that. He's using firstborn here 
just like Paul used firstborn in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. He's the firstborn of creation. He's not speaking about time. He's not like God decided to create and Jesus is the first thing he created. It's a position. It has the idea of he's the source of all of it. He's the authority behind all of it. He's the first cause of all of it. Jesus is eternal. And it's by Him and through Him. God created everything that exists. John 1, Colossians 1. So don't read this as if, well, I guess Jesus was the first thing God created. No, it's not it at all. He's the source of it. So, this is who's writing this. This is who's saying this. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And he starts again. This is the way he... He addresses these churches in verse 15. I know your works. And again, the language is such that I know your works completely. I'm not guessing here. I'm not sitting back saying, hmm, I wonder if this is true. Jesus is saying, I know this is true about you. And if he knows it, he knows it. And if he says it, it's true. Take it to the bank. I know your works. And then he says, this is what's interesting about what he says. And I, I think uh, for a long time, I took this one wave and then... A while back, I'm thinking through this, and it got to bothering me about the way I was looking at it. Well, let me read it. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's vomit, literally. This is, this is I'm, going to, I'm going to throw you out of my system violently because you make me sick you ever been thirsty dying of thirst and gotten this tepid stenchy no good for nothing water and as soon as it hits your mouth first thing you do is what it comes out it comes out that's the image that he's using here now as you look at it he says because uh, he says i know your works you're neither hot you're neither cold nor hot now keep in mind as I open this and talking about Laodicea in the Lycus Valley, one thing Laodicea did not have was good water. In fact, in this whole valley, there was really no good fresh water. Colossae had some in the upper part of the, and you could find some good cool water. But once you got in the Lycus Valley, once you got to Laodicea, once you got to Hierapolis, you, you, you could hardly find any good fresh water. So what they had done over the years in Laodicea is they had to, they had to literally pipe this water into Laodicea. And they built these aqueducts. Now these weren't the normal aqueducts that you would see in Roman times where they were above the ground, they were below the ground. And so this water would come from these hot springs about six miles away from Laodicea. And by the time it got to Laodicea, you can just imagine. You can just imagine this tepid, smelly water. And you would see the mineral deposits all over. Everything it touched after a period of time, you'd see mineral deposits. Sometimes those mineral deposits, like this place I told you about in Wyoming, it was beautiful when you got up and looked and saw just over the... Hundreds of years, just this mineral deposits that it built. It's just beautiful to behold. But you didn't dive into that water and say, oh man, I'm thirsty, let me give me a swig. That water got in your mouth, first thing you did was vomit. 
I mean, it hits your system and whoo, it's coming up. You didn't play around in the pool, spit in that water, and no, you didn't do that. So Jesus said, look, I know this about you. You're neither cold nor hot. Now, cold is good, right? Cold is good. You need good cold water. Been working, it's a hot day. You get a good, cold, refreshing drink of water. But hot is good. Right? And you come in, you've been working all day, and you're tired, and your back's hurting. There's nothing like a good, hot shower, right? There's nothing like soaking in a good, hot tub. And if you got one of those big whirlpool-type tubs, there's nothing like sitting in that tub and soaking. So, cold is good. Hot is good. And this is what he says. You're neither cold nor hot. You're useless. You're good for nothing. I wish you were either cold or hot. See, this is what bothered me for a long time about this verse. Why would Jesus say to a church, if this were spiritually like cold, like Cold, you know, like you're really not on fire for the Lord. And hot, like you're really on fire for the Lord. Why would Jesus say to a church, I wish you were spiritually dead? That just didn't make sense to me. So, but when you sort of get behind this and start thinking through this and seeing what he's saying and understanding a little bit about the water supply and the what's happened in the region and so forth. And furthermore, what he says in verse 16, so because you are lukewarm. That's the issue. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. You're useless. I wish you were that refreshing cold drink of water. I wish you were that hot spring that brings healing and comfort. But you're none of that. You're not anything like that. You're just there. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then here comes verse 17. For you say, this is what you were saying, and this is in the present tense. So this is something they were continually saying. They were bragging about this. For you continually say, I am rich. I am rich. Man, I have prospered. And I have need of nothing. This is exactly what the city said. This is exactly the characteristic of the city. And this is exactly the characteristic of this church sitting in this city who's absorbed all this thinking from the city. And this church sitting there. Oh, we're rich. We don't have any money problems. Look at our buildings. Look at our budgets. Look at the people who are in this church. Why, they're on this council and they're on this and they're in that and they're in this position and they're in that position and... Man, we're prospering. I have prospered. I will continue to prosper. I need nothing. Can you imagine living your life that way? Could you imagine saying, I need nothing? Don't you need God? Oh, well. You see the problem with that? I need nothing. Then Jesus says, no, let me shine the light. Let me, let, me, let me inform you of something here. And again, remember, this is by way of intervention. They're blind. They don't see it. They can't see it. 
I am rich, I prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing, not understanding that you are wretched. This is Jesus's, this is, this is his diagnosis of the situation. You want me to tell you what you're really like? You want me to tell you spiritually what you're really like? You're wretched. You're devastated. You're pitiable. Pitiable. You're miserable. That's what that word means. Miserable. You're to be pitied. You think, you think you're something great. You're to be pitied. You're poor. Now this word for poor here is extreme poverty. It's not like, oh, well, you got to work for a living. No. You have to beg to survive. This is extreme poverty. This is what you're like. You're wretched. You're to be pitied. You're a beggar. You're blind. You can't see. And you're naked. You're exposed. Do you see him taking shot after shot at this city? I mean, what are they known for? Again, they're known for their garments, right? Jesus did this with the churches, and he does it really, really sharply here with Laodicea. You're naked. What do you mean we're naked? We've got this garment industry. We've got durable clothes. We've got this black, shiny wool. You're blind. What do you mean you're blind? We're known for our eyes, Sal. Why you have an eye helmet? We'll fix your eyes for you. What do you mean we're blind? You're poor. What do you mean we're poor? What do you mean we're beggars? Have you not seen our banking industry? And I'm sure the church was wrapped up in this. They probably had people that worked in these, these different areas. And so Jesus is saying, listen, in this intervention, the first thing you need to understand is your true spiritual condition here. And this is what you are. And he says in verse 18, he says beginning in verse 18, here's your true need here. This is what you really need to do. You don't need to continue down this road of this, this conceited attitude and continue down this road of saying, I need nothing. I don't depend on anything. Here's the second area of this intervention in verse 18. You, you need to know your true, where, where to get this, your true need, and then you need to understand what you truly need here. He says, I counsel you. I'm advising you. I'm advising you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. Well, wait a minute. We're, we're bankers. We're rich. No, 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 no. I want you to buy from me. You see that? Don't you run to your banker. You come to me. You come to me and you buy from me gold refined by the fire. What is the gold refined by the fire? It's pure, right? It's been through the refining process. The gold here, I think, may be referencing, maybe see, this is a reference sort of to God's glory. I want you to find God's glory. Buy from me this gold refined by the fire. And he says, buy this so that you may be rich. You think you're rich, but you're not. You're poor. You're a beggar. So buy from me this fine gold refined by the fire that you may be rich, that you may be truly rich, spiritually rich. And then notice, and white garments. These white garments. So that you may, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. 
The white garments. We've run across this before. We'll run across it again in the book of Revelation. Let me just say this. If the gold refined by the fire is God's glory, then the white white raiment here is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to clothe you with His righteousness. And this imagery comes up again in the book of Revelation. The church, as a Christian, as a believer, we come to Christ and the filthy rags that we have are taken off and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I want you to come get this from me. You can't get it anywhere else. There's only one place that you can get this gold. There's only one place that you can get this white raiment and it is from me. And then notice what else he says here. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You can't see. You're blind. You're deceived. You need to be able to see here. The seeing and the opening of the eyes is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. This is what we read in the New Testament. In fact, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, I have to go away. He's going to come. And when he comes, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to lead you into truth. He's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to open your eyes to these kinds of things. He's going to take what I've taught. He's going to take these things of mine. He's going to teach them to you, right? And then sometimes we pray, oh Lord, and we pray for the working of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see truth, right? I just wonder here. This self-sufficient church saying, we don't need anything, we're rich, we prosper, and Jesus saying, you don't understand, you're useless, you're good for nothing. And then he mentions these three areas. Now, I think you can see the connection with the city, and you can see the connection with banking and the wool industry and the eye, but I just wonder here if we don't see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The gold, the glory of God. The righteousness of Christ. The working of the Holy Spirit. Opening our eyes to truth. Well, that's what you really need here. That's what you really need. That's what you need to be seeking after here. You need to understand this. So I counsel you, I'm advising you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then verse 19. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The very fact that Jesus is intervening and saying this to this church. And disciplining this church is proof of his love for this church. We may come back and say, well, that's not very loving to say that about a group of people. Well, what's more loving To say, oh, you're okay, you're great, you're wonderful. And watch them slide further into the pit of hell. Is that loving? To be so tolerant that we watch culture and we watch neighbors and co-workers and so forth, we watch them continually slide down into further and further and further and further into their sin. And we're just so pliable and tolerant. That we let them go? Jude makes a reference about snatching them from the fire. Having mercy. Snatching them from the fire. Saving them from the desires of the flesh. 
So the very fact that he intervenes and says this is an act of love because he could have just let them go. Right? He could have just said nothing to them and let them continue on. And they would have continued on and they would have never known anything at all was wrong. But he says, listen guys, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews will take Proverbs chapter 3. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he will say that those whom God loves, those whom are His, if you're really His child, He's going to discipline you. When you fall into sin... And the writer of Hebrews says, don't take this, don't, don't be destroyed by this. Understand that in this discipline, it is a display of the love of God. He's not going to let you continue to continue on in your sin without correction, without reproof, without discipline. That's one of the ways I know I am truly a child of God because I cannot keep sinning without correction. And I know that. I've experienced that. And if I could keep sinning, and there's no correction, and there's no discipline, then the writer of Hebrews is very clear. You are no child of His. The ones that I love, I'm going to chase and I'm going to discipline. I'm coming after you. You want to fall into sin? And we all do, don't we? You want to fall? You want to have your mind shifted here and there for a little bit? You want to have some feelings that you probably shouldn't have? You want to have some thoughts that you probably shouldn't have? You want to do some things that you probably know you shouldn't do? You want to say some things you probably know you shouldn't say? You want to look at some things you probably shouldn't be looking at? You want to do that? I'm coming after you! And when I do, understand it's love. I'm going to pull you back. And it might be painful. You see, it's a loving act for him to go after this church. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. I know. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And then he says, be zealous. Don't wait. Don't half-heartedly do this and don't wait to do this. Don't wait for a better day to do this. Be zealous and repent. Repent now. Turn from this. Turn from this. Turn away from this. Turn to me. Come to me. Buy from me these things. And then here's the beautiful promise of fellowship. It's the third area of this intervention. I mean, look, guys, you need to understand this is what you're really like. You need to understand this is what you really need. And you need to understand here is a real, legitimate offer of true fellowship. Because verse 20, he says, Behold, look, I stand at the door. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This promise of fellowship here. Now, I do have to say this about this verse, because this verse is ripped out of its context, and it's used to say, and it's used in the context of evangelism. And usually it goes something like this. Jesus stands at the door of your heart, and he knocks at the door of your heart. 
you've probably seen the picture, right? Of Jesus standing at the door, and he's knocking at the door of your heart. And if you'll just open the door of your heart, he'll come in and you'll be saved. That has nothing to do with this verse. That's not what he's saying. Now, is it true that I receive him? Is it true that he comes to me and I receive? Yeah, that's true. There are plenty of other verses that say that. John chapter uh, 1 verse 12 is one that comes to mind. As many as received him, as received him, then he gave the right to become children of God. What he's saying here is he's speaking to the church. He's saying, I'm standing at the door of the church. And I'm knocking at the door of the church. And if anyone will hear and open the door, this is, this is such a vivid image in our mind here. Just picture Christ locked out of his own church. And he's knocking. And if anyone will listen and, and, and open the door, I will come in. That's one word in the Greek. It's a compound word. And then there's the preposition to, which is pros. It's to. It's not into. It's not like I'm going to come into inside of them. This construction is used in other places where this compound verb is used with pros. Had he wanted to mean, had he wanted to say, I'm going to come into you like inside you as a person, he would have used the preposition ice, which is one word, into. He didn't use that. So the construction's clear in the Greek. It's also clear in the English that what he's saying is, I'm going to come inside the church to you. And I'm going to be right there. And this is a beautiful promise. It's beautiful. If anyone hears my voice, you remember John 10, my sheep hear my voice. Listen, if we fall away as a church and he comes and he disciplines us like this and there's knocking, uh, there, there's going to be some of us here that are, that are still seeking or trying to seek after him and open his word and we open. You remember the Jews? You remember reading in Nehemiah? Monty read this morning, Nehemiah, quarter of a day, they're standing up. First time they hear the word of God, what do they do? They're broken. They hear his voice. They're broken. They repent. That's the way it should happen. I'm coming, locked out of my church. A church that's self-sufficient. A church that thinks it needs nothing. A church that outwardly is prosperous. A church that is, that is, that is dead, useless, good for nothing. I'm calling to this church. And when they hear my voice, they're going to repent. And I'm going to come in and have this fellowship. I'm going to come in... And eat with him, he with me. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And then he closes with this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, you've got to understand your true condition here. You've got to understand what you really need here. And you got to understand what I offer in my love to you. What I offer out of my love for you, what I offer to you, is not prosperity the way the world defines it. 
What I offer to you is prosperity the way I define it. And how does he define it? Faithfulness. Stay true to me. Stay true to my word. I think as we look at our culture, I think what, what we are seeing is, is there, there's, there's a sifting that's taking place. There's a lot that worries me about it. There's a lot that worries me, and we've talked about this, and some of it's come up in some of these letters, and, and our, 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 our dealing with tolerance and you know, compromise and those kinds of things, and the pressure's getting greater and greater and greater to just be pliable as a church. And if we just be pliable, then we could be pretty prosperous in America. We could. The pressure is greater and greater, but there's a sifting that's taking place. I think as, as much as I'm worried about certain things, there, there, there is one thing that I think is, that's been needed for a long time, and that's a separation between what is true and what is false, particularly when it comes to churches. There's a separation that's beginning to happen. There's a separation between, say, a Smyrna, you remember what he said about Smyrna? You are poor. You have nothing. And he didn't say anything bad about the church of Smyrna, but Jesus said, you're rich, guys. And now look at Laodicea. Now, I, don't th- I think these are seven real churches, and I don't think this is, this is looking at church ages or anything like that. But there is something to this, I think, as we look at America. We, we, we can see. We can see a contrast. We can see a self-sufficient, self-righteous, I-need-nothing church in America, don't we? I need nothing. We're rich. We have it all. We're on TV. Look at, look at the following week. Look at the, the, it's just amazing. It's unbelievable. And then there's Smyrna's. You don't have anything. You have no influence. But you're rich because you're staying true to me. There's a separation that's beginning to happen. And I think it's going to get wider and wider. And I think it's going to become clearer and clearer. I think that's a great thing. God has not called us to be prosperous. I thank Him for America. I thank Him that I live in the freest nation on land. I thank Him that I live in a nation that over the history of this nation probably has done more for the cause of the gospel and spreading of the gospel and the freedom that we've had and so forth than probably any people on the face of the earth. But there's an underbelly there. There is an underbelly there that we would be wise to avoid, to see and avoid. And that's this worldly sense of prosperity that leaves us thinking we're self-sufficient and we need nothing. We need Christ. We need Christ. And if we don't have Him, we're good for nothing. We're useless. If we don't have the Gospel, and we're not going to stand for the Gospel, and we're not going to stand for the truth of the Word of God, and we're not going to stand for Christ, 
in a loving way. I'm not saying in a hateful, judgmental way. I'm just talking about in a loving way, in a compassionate way. Sincerely understanding there, but for the grace of God go I. But we stand and, and, and we hold to that truth and we hold to the gospel. We hold to Christ. We hold to that. We, we're trying. We're holding on to it. If we don't do that, we're good for nothing. We're useless. We're neither cold. We're neither hot. We're useless. I don't want to be a useless church. I don't want to be a good for nothing church. I want to be one that looks to our Lord and says to Him, wherever you lead, we'll do what? We're going to go. And the only way that happens is it's got to happen with us personally. It's got to start with us because we are the church. And if it's not happening with us individually, it ain't going to happen to us corporately. You realize that? It starts with us. It starts with us. And it starts with me understanding my true condition. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am not okay outside of Christ. I need a Savior. I need one who can cover my sin. I need one who died for my sin. I need one who took my place, who paid the penalty for my sin. I need to come to Him and trust Him and turn from my sin. Come to Him. He died, was buried, raised the third day. When I come to Him, yeah, He comes to me. And He changes my life. And when He changes my life, and I get with a group of people that He's changed their life, and we get together, and we just simply say, here we are, change us, use us, and whatever. And, and, and we get that, and more here, and more here, and more here, and more here. Boom! Look out! Look out! That's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. And God turned the world upside down. That's what I want. That's what I want. Let's pray together. Father, Laodicea hits us hard.